it is time for us to get into the Word of God. We've been working through the book of what? Romans. We're in Romans chapter 6. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read through the first 14 verses of the chapter. We're not going to get through all of Romans chapter 6 today. We're going to break it into a two-part. Um, so we're going to read through the first 14 verses, and then we're going to pray. You guys ready? Okay, if you've got your Bibles with you, maybe use your phone or something like that, you can turn there. I read out of the NIV version, but there's plenty, uh, and I'll have the scripture on the avail- available on the screen as well. Let's start in verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in death like this, we will also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Can everyone say amen? Amen. Let's keep reading. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these words of Paul, these these letters here, and this letter particularly to the early church in Rome. God, I pray that as we read through this letter in our church, God, that we'd be blessed. God, that we'd be okay. We could learn from what Paul what Paul is sharing with the Romans. And God, we could learn directly from you. God, I ask that you'd speak to us, that you'd inspire us, that you'd wake us up in a sense. We long for your word in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Have you ever sort of thought to yourself, are we doing this right? And what I mean by that, I'm actually talking more particularly about church. Considering like the state of the world and the way that things are, You've probably noticed that things seem to be getting a little bit darker. And not just the days, but literally our world seems to be getting a little bit darker. And maybe you're like me and you've wondered before, are we doing this right? Right, like by going through the book of Romans, kind of like chapter by chapter, is this what we're supposed to be doing? By singing the songs that we're singing and the way that we're singing, is this the way we're supposed to do it? And I think these are fine questions. I, I mean, maybe you might even be thinking like, should we be getting ready to be persecuted? Or maybe should we be getting like ready to kind of you know, stand firm for Jesus and our faith up against kind of any obstacle or fight that might come our way? You see, if you've thought like this, I don't think that you're alone. And I don't necessarily think that these are bad thoughts to be having. I don't think they're terrible thoughts at all. I've thought thoughts like this before too. Sometimes I get pessimistic. Who gets pessimistic here? Let me get pessimistic. I can get caught in in pessimism. 
But when I get pessimistic, it's passages like Romans chapter 6 that sort of boost my confidence. You see, I'm comforted by the fact that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome during a time when a guy named Nero was emperor. Now, Nero was, for lack of a better word, crazy. Get this, he, he enjoyed, and I'm not making this up, he enjoyed killing Christians. He used to put them up on poles, and he'd light them on fire in his gardens to light the way. He was crazy. You could say that he was evil. That's kind of just the guy that Nero was. And Nero was actually the man who would call for the beheading of Paul, the one who wrote this letter. According to church history, Paul died under the reign of Nero. And yet, when Paul's writing this letter and other letters, he takes the time to talk in great depth about our salvation. He talked about how we're saved, and he talked about the benefits of our salvation. And that's sort of what we're going to get into in chapter 6. And I'm comforted by this fact, knowing that even in times of difficulty, darkness, and persecution, we have such a great hope. Who is our hope? Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's dealing with here in chapter 6. And when, you're, and when you begin reading through this chapter, if it feels like you've sort of kind of caught Paul in the middle of what sounds like a conversation, you'd actually be right to think so. That's exactly what's happening. He, he's right in the middle of a thought that he actually began in chapter 5. And if you remember at the end of that chapter, he made an interesting or I guess an important statement that is now sort of generating the thoughts that he's developing here in chapter 6. Just so that we can kind of all be on the same page in case you weren't here last week. I'm going to show you kind of a closing passage or part of the passage from last week. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 20. It says this. It says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Church, could you read that with me? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so what Paul was basically saying here in chapter 5 was that sin was on the move. And as sin increases in the world and as sin increases within our culture, there is a corresponding work of God's grace that doesn't just meet the sin. It increases. It surpasses. It increases all the more. It goes beyond that sin. To an equal value? No. All the more. And this is kind of the statement that he makes that sort of springboards us into chapter 6. So throughout the, 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 throughout the chapter, Paul's going to talk about our relationship to sin. And so I'm going to ask you just here and now, and please don't blurt it out. What is your relationship to sin? Think that through just for like a moment. What is my relationship to sin? You might be all of a sudden kind of thinking about different sins in your life or things, occurrences in your life or discouragement in your life. But that's not exactly the question. What is your relationship to sin? Well, we know what our relationship was before we met Jesus, right? Paul actually wrote about this in Ephesians. Let me put that scripture on the screen for you. Here's what he said. Ephesians chapter two, verses one to two. He says, as for you, I think it's us, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So that pretty much sums it up, right? This was our relationship to sin before we met Jesus. We were literally dead in our transgressions. We were enslaved to the passions of our flesh. We didn't have the ability to say no to our flesh before we had Christ. But then Jesus comes and he changes everything. This was our previous relationship to sinful nature. And then 
Jesus came and everything changed. And that's what Paul begins to talk about here in chapter 6. Our previous relationship to sin has changed. And so he begins with a question. Paul loves to ask questions. And I think this is a good thing in in a communicator. He, He asks, what shall we say? This is verse one. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, what exactly is Paul doing here? Why is he asking such a silly question? I think he's asking this kind of question because he's anticipating the question that they might have based on what he just... Are we okay? Maybe the question would go something like this. Well, Paul, if, if you said where sin increases, grace increases all the more, shouldn't we just kind of sin as much as we want so that grace can increase even more? Right? It's kind of a silly question, but, but I think that it's not too silly because I think I've heard something similar before. Have you ever talked to somebody that kind of implies that it's their job to sin and it's God's job to forgive? Right? Since God's the forgiver, it's my job to give them something to forgive. Right? Have you, maybe you've heard that thought or perhaps you've thought that before. I've actually had people kind of just look me in the eye and, and they'll say something along the lines, well, well God's just going to forgive me. That's what God does right? And so Paul says, does that mean that we're just supposed to sin so that grace can increase all the more? It's a rhetorical question. And then Paul's going to explain how the relationship between you and I and sin has changed since you came to Christ. Verse 2, Paul answers his own prior question, and then he asks a new question. This is kind of Paul's style of communicating. He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer. How can we live in it any longer? Paul's asking how it's possible to live in sin when in fact we've died to sin. And a typical kind of response to this question, I think, would be, when did we do that? When did we die to sin? See, Paul just kind of drops a bomb of a statement. He's like, by the way, don't you know you've died to sin? And we're all like, Really? When did that happen? I don't feel dead to sin. Who here sometimes doesn't feel dead to sin, right? Well, he goes on in verse three and he kind of explains how. And I love how he opens with these first three words. He says, don't you know? Can you say that? Don't you know? What don't we know? (laughs) Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? What an interesting statement. And he starts with, don't you know? And so I guess I'll kind of ask you guys, did you know that? Did you know? What does he say? He says, don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Did you know that? See, I remember when I kind of first came across this thought, I was in late high school, and uh, I hadn't really... I hadn't really understood this thought. It was new to me. And it began to kind of grab my attention, maybe 17 years old, 18 years old. And it started kind of, it's, it was a mind-blowing realization to me. And I, and I kind of, as I began to look at this, the implications became huge to me. You ever kind of had that where there's like a revelation moment? I had a revelation moment late in high school where this kind of occurred to me that, wait, I'm dead to sin? What do you mean? When, when I was baptized into Christ, I was baptized into his death. What exactly does that mean? And so when Paul asked the question, don't you know, there was a point in my life where I didn't really know. 
In fact, uh, when I was baptized, I didn't know this. I, I think I was baptized at 16 years old, and, and, I, and I knew that I was forgiven of my sin, but I didn't really know what all of this meant. And then in my late teens, I came to find out that I'd been baptized into his death, which was a wild realization for me. Look at what he goes on to say in verse four. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. Let's stop there for just a moment. See, before we can kind of understand what Paul's saying here, I think we need to understand the, the kind of true definition for the word baptism. Can you say that word with me? Baptism. So let me ask you a question. Have you been baptized into Christ? Think that through. Now, when I ask this question, what people kind of typically think that I'm referring to is they would typically think that I'm referring to water baptism. But that's not what I'm asking, and that's not what Paul's referring to either. The reason I think this is because over the years, I think that we've sort of exalted the act of water baptism over the meaning. The meaning of water baptism is far greater than the act of water baptism. Let me say that again. The meaning of water baptism is far greater than the act of water baptism. See, the word baptism simply means to be immersed, right? To be baptized is to be immersed. And the Bible talks about several kinds of baptisms, water baptism just being one of them. There's also baptism in the spirit or by the spirit, which is being immersed in the spirit. Did you know that the Bible even talks about being baptized into suffering? Right? You don't, even, you don't really hear too many people saying, God, would you just baptize me in suffering, right? It's, it's not as popular, right? But there's a talk in the Bible about being immersed in suffering. And you see, when, when Paul is talking here about baptism, he's actually talking about the spiritual reality that you and I portray when we are baptized in water. But please understand that, that water baptism is merely a portrayal of a greater reality. Water baptism does not save people. It's not like when you're dunked under the water and you come up out of the water that that's the moment that you're saved. That's just, that's a wrong thought. We immerse people in the water to portray the fact that they've been immersed into Christ and their sins are forgiven as you accept what Jesus has done for you on the cross. So Paul's telling us that you and I are immersed to Christ. When you, when you are immersed into Christ, you're joined with him. And one of the things that you're joined with Christ in when you're immersed or when you're baptized is you're joining him with his death. Now, I'll be honest. Like I said before, when I was 16 years old, I did not know this when I was baptized. I thought that I was simply forgiven of my sins, and I wanted to demonstrate that. And I was excited about that, like truly, truly excited. I didn't understand that I was telling a story. See, every time someone is water baptized, they're telling a story. What is that story? Well, it's the story of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and how you are identified with joining Christ in those things. Does that make some sense? You tracking with me? So when we take people into the water, right, and as they stand in the water, what they're portraying at that time is their life without Christ. Now, just for understanding, they're already born again, they're already forgiven, but they're portraying this after the fact. So we bring them into the water, and the first thing we do is we kind of lay them back into the water. 
And this portrays the fact that they've been joined with Christ in his death. And then we bring them back up out of the water, and that signifies the spiritual reality of the fact that they've been raised with Christ into new life. So it's this beautiful portrayal of a spiritual reality. But, but again, just to make it clear, water baptism itself, the act that is, does not save people. You can get anybody you want and you can dunk them under water and it wouldn't make a difference unless there'd been a spiritual action in their life. I mean, if water baptism saved people, then we wouldn't baptize people with consent, would we? Right, we'd you know maybe just tie their hands, get some duct tape, and be like dunk, right? And then we'd be like, you know, you know, you're upset at me now, but you'll thank me later, right? Like, <laughs> I saved you. <laughs> if that's all it took, but that's not all it takes. It's a heart situation, isn't it? It's coming to Christ. It's an opening of one's heart completely to what Jesus has done on the cross. That's what it means to be immersed or to be baptized into Christ. But why is Paul bringing all this up? It's because that resurrection part of being joined with Christ isn't something that's just like a wonderful day in the future when, when you will be raised and resur- resurrected. He's talking about a resurrection today, all right? A resurrection that you can enjoy, that you can take hold of today, December 3rd, 2023. He has a resurrection in mind for you. Look at verse four again. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We too may live a new life. Can you say that with me? We too may live a new life. Who here is living a new life in Jesus Christ? Me too. He's talking about our relationship to sin. Remember what we saw before in Ephesians? What was our relationship to sin? We were dead, right? And now we have a new relationship that allows us to walk in a new way according to the plan of God, according to the purpose of God, according to the heart of God, and no longer according to our flesh. And this is the beauty of what happened to you and I. This death that you and I entered into with Jesus, it was needed. It was required. We had to be dead because only a death could set us free from that old life in the flesh. Only death could set us free. Let's read verse five. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. And what, his re- and what was his resurrection like? It was being raised victorious. What was he raised victorious over? Well, he was raised victorious over the penalty of sin. Jesus conquered sin by his death, burial, and resurrection. And by joining him, In his death, in his burial and resurrection, we too are victorious. Victorious over what? Sin. We emerge victorious over? Let's keep reading. Verse six. For we know that our old self, before Jesus, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anybody who has died has been set free from sin. Let's stop for just a moment. I find the language that Paul is kind of introducing and using here to be super interesting. Paul likens our previous relationship to sin to one of slavery. We were slaves. Now, it's an interesting picture because a slave doesn't have a choice, do they? They live how their master determines that they're going to live. And we were in slavery to our sinful nature, meaning that we didn't have a choice in the matter. We simply obeyed our flesh. 
what we wanted. We did as we wanted. But now by joining in Christ and in his death, that relationship with slavery has been broken. Why? Just as death released a slave from their servitude, so also joining with Christ in his death sets us free from that previous relationship to sin that once dominated our lives. Let me say that again. Just as death released a slave from their servitude, so also joining with Christ in his death sets us free from the previous relationship to sin that once dominated our lives. So Paul's gonna continue to develop this thought here in a few verses, but first let's look at verses eight through 10. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Church, hear me loud and clear. Jesus cannot die again because death has been defeated. Say that with me. Jesus cannot die again because death has been defeated. We release the power of sin to control and to dominate our lives through our belief in Jesus Christ, through the power of Jesus. This next verse here, verse 11, I think is probably like kind of the PowerPoint one. This is the one that you highlight with your highlighter. This is the one that you circle or you underline. This is the one that you want to memorize. This is a key verse to understanding this passage. It says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, exercise your faith and believe that you've entered into the death of Christ and that sin no longer has control of your life. Let that just like sink in for a moment. This is one of the reasons that Paul was so criticized for his gospel. People would say to him literally, Paul, you're crazy. You're telling people that the path to holy living comes without rules? That's ridiculous. The path to holy living comes by faith? Just believing that we've been set free? And Paul's like, yup, that's exactly what I've been saying. And he says it over and over and over again. And should that really surprise us? How are you saved? Well, it's by faith, by grace through faith. Isn't that how you're saved? Or have you been working for your salvation? Have you been trying hard to live this perfect life to earn it in a sense? I hope not. Grace through faith. It's amazing how we might think we understand this, but yet we're so filled with shame when we sin. You know what Paul would say to that? He would say to you and I that when we came to Christ, you literally joined with him in his death. Here's the problem, though. We don't believe that. I know that sounds like quite the thing. You'd be like, Pastor, I do, right? But, but, we, we, but we don't. And I'll share an example of, of how I can tell sometimes that we don't. Have you ever maybe you've been talking to somebody and they'll say something along the lines of, you know what, I'm just really stuck in my sin. I can't move. I can't get free, right? It feels like I'm trapped and I just can't get out. Basically, what they're saying is I'm not free. See, when we come to Christ, we are set free. Say that with me. When we come to Christ, we are set free. Paul says, believe it. It's not wishful thinking. It's not the kind of thinking that goes, I believe it, I believe it, I wish it, I wish it, I hope it, I hope it. It's not like a star going by, right? Believe it. Believe that it's done. Believe that he did it. Believe that you're set free, that it's true. 
Why don't we believe it? Well, it's because sin is constantly knocking at our door. Or is that just me? Sin is constantly knocking at the door, right? And the enemy loves to remind us that we're just as much under the control of sin as we ever was, right? He tells us lies. He tries to trick us in this way, and we get suckered into this thought, and we need to start changing our thinking. Who here needs to start changing their thinking around this? I know that I do. I know that this is true. We need to start changing our thinking, believing that we've really been set free. Here's how Paul describes the walking out of that faith. Look at verse 12. He says, therefore, do not, say those two words with me, do not, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Well, if only it was that simple, right? He's saying you've been set free, so live free. Now, do you understand what freedom really means? I've talked about it before, but I'll do it again. Do you understand to be free that you have to be free to choose, which means that you can choose to be free, but it also means that you can choose to go back to that state of slavery. If you can't choose sin, you're not truly free. God hasn't taken away the option of choosing sin. He simply makes it free for us to choose the right way. Before you knew Christ, you didn't really have a say in this matter, did you? Right? We were enslaved to sin, enslaved to the flesh. But now you have a choice in the matter. And people will think sometimes, well, if God set me free, why do I keep sinning? It's a regular question, a reasonable question. It's because you choose to. You choose to sin. Let me highlight a verse from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, it is for freedom. Say those two words with me. For freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What is Paul saying? He's saying that it is possible for us to go back and take on our position as a slave. It's possible. You've been set free, but you're free to say, Jesus, I I want to follow you. And you're also free to say, hey, sin, I want to follow you. You might even go back and forth sometimes if you're like me. If you're not free to say that, then you're not really free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's not for slavery. He didn't set you free so that you could go back to be a slave. If you're feeling hopeless this morning, you are feeling trapped, you are feeling stuck, you are feeling kind of empty and hopeless in this manner. You feel like you just, there is no winning this battle. It feels like you've been kind of carved out so that you would just go back to sin. If you're feeling like that kind of way, if you're kind of on the teeter-totter and there's no one on the other side, you're just sitting on the ground and there's no hope for you to be raised up, let me just say this. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's not for slavery. He didn't do it so that you could go back to be a slave. That's not why he died for you. He set you free so you could actually live free. So you could actually walk in the experience of the joy of living a free life. Let's get back to Romans and finish up. Look at verse 13 with me. He says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. We can offer ourselves up, but who are we gonna offer ourselves to? What are we gonna offer ourselves as? This is gonna be sort of the springboard into next week. He finishes here by saying, for sin shall no longer be your master. 
because you are not under the law, but under grace. What do you mean by that, Paul? What do you mean we're not under the law? What do you mean that we're under grace? What's that all about? Paul, I don't understand how we can live righteous lives without the law. See, if you take the law away, then all you're left with is lawlessness. Paul says, no, there is grace. And that's what Paul's going to talk about in these coming chapters here. This is going to be the continual emphasis as we make our way through Romans. How you and I might live in such a way that is pleasing to God, apart from the rules, apart from the regulations, and apart from the law. Since we're not under the law, we're under grace. We're going to switch gears here for a little bit. I'm actually going to have our worship team come forward. We're going to celebrate communion today. But again, I wanted to take just a quick moment here to remind you what it really means to be dead to sin. What it means to be dead to sin is not necessarily that that sin is something that you will never experience again. It doesn't necessarily mean that sin is something that you left behind the day that you were saved. I mean that we wish it were that way. Right, I've talked before how if there was a magical button that I could just press, that I knew that I wouldn't be able to sin anymore, that I would press that button so fast. Right, and I think that you would too. Right, we genuinely want in our hearts to be able to rid ourselves of sin, but it's something that we kind of continually come back to. And it's here that, as I talked about before, Satan likes to kind of grab our foot and to yank us back down the ladder. Right? And so my challenge to you here today is to have like a bit of a reframing of your mind. That because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, you are forgiven for your sin. You don't have to walk in shame for those choices that you've made. But instead, you can give them to the Lord and you can put them on his back. He died on the cross for our sins for a reason. And then in that, as you structure your life and as you walk day by day, I challenge you, to live in such a way that you are seeking his righteousness. I think it was in verse 13, if I go back here, where he says, do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. So my challenge for you is to not live like you're still dead to sin, but to really live like you are alive in Christ. And that means that we have to kind of restructure our brains a little bit to understand that even though we still sin, that he has conquered that sin. In a moment here, we're gonna worship together. We're also gonna...